You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. When you hear about witchcraft in colonial New England, you probably think immediately of the famous witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts, immortalized in Arthur Miller's 1953 play The Crucible. However, by the time the Salem witch trials began in 1692, witchcraft accusations were already common. Several decades before the trials at Salem, the first execution for witchcraft in New England took place not in Massachusetts, but in the colony of Connecticut. Connecticut law addressed witchcraft in a 1642 statute that cited biblical precedents. It read, If any man or woman be a witch, that is, hath or consulteth with a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. Between 1647 and 1663, 34 people were tried for witchcraft in New England. Half of these were convicted and hanged. And while accusations of witchcraft were more common in Massachusetts, Connecticut boasted the most convictions and executions. In this episode, I bring you the stories of some of Connecticut's earliest convicted witches and a current proposed resolution in the Connecticut State Legislature that may exonerate them. On May 26, 1647, Alice Young became the first person executed for witchcraft in Connecticut. In fact, hers was probably the first execution for witchcraft in the American colonies. Little documentation remains from Alice Young's trial outside of a quick note in the journal of John Winthrop, governor of Massachusetts Bay, reading, One blank of Windsor, arraigned and executed at Hartford for a witch and an item in the diary of Matthew Grant, town clerk of Windsor, on a page listing the names of those who'd been hanged and the dates of the hangings. From other documentation, it seems likely that Alice was the wife of John Young, who disappears from the records in 1649 after selling some of his property. Alice may also have been the mother of Alice Young Beeman, who would face her own accusations of witchcraft 30 years later in Springfield, Massachusetts. In the same year as Alice's trial, the colonies at Massachusetts and Connecticut experienced an outbreak of influenza. In what's likely the first record of an influenza epidemic in the colonies, Winthrop wrote, An epidemical sickness was through the country among Indian and English, French, and Dutch. It took them like a cold and a light fever with it, such as bled or used cold drinks died. Those who took comfortable things, for most part, recovered in that in few days. Wherein a special providence of God appeared for not a family, nor but a few persons escaping it, had it brought all so weak as it did some, and continued so long. Our hay and corn had been lost for want of help, but such was the mercy of God to his people, as few died, not above forty or fifty in the Massachusetts, and near as many at Connecticut. But that which made the stroke more sensible and grievous, both to them 
and all the country was the death of that faithful servant of the Lord, Mr. Thomas Hooker, pastor of the church in Hartford, who for piety, prudence, wisdom, zeal, learning, and what else might make him serviceable in the place and time he lived in, might be compared with men of greatest note, and he shall need no other praise. The fruits of his labors in both Englands shall preserve an honorable and happy remembrance of him forever. A decade earlier, the Reverend Thomas Hooker, along with Reverend Samuel Stone, founded the settlement at Hartford. Winthrop's sorrow at Hooker's passing reflects the pastor's standing as the founder of the community and his reputation as an inspirational preacher. However, the epidemic would go on to claim a victim even closer to Governor Winthrop, his beloved wife. Winthrop describes her passing in a stoic entry that reads, In this sickness, the governor's wife, daughter of Sir John Tyndall, Knight, left this world for a better, being about 56 years of age. A woman of singular virtue, prudence, modesty, and piety, and especially beloved and honored of all the country. The epidemic and its terrible toll may go some way toward explaining why the fear of witchcraft had gripped the citizens and the courts of Connecticut. But it's not the only reason. After all, accusations of witchcraft would continue at least until the end of the century. Of those accused of witchcraft in New England, nearly 80% were women. However, as historian Carol Carlson has noted, Unlike their counterparts in England, the accused witches of the colonies included women who had inherited and owned property. Those who lacked male heirs, brothers or sons who might receive their estates, were the most likely to be tried, convicted, and executed. In fact, according to available documents, it appears the first three women to have been executed for witchcraft in Connecticut, Alice Young, Mary Johnson, and Joan Carrington, had no sons of their own to succeed them. Like Alice Young, Mary Johnson of Wethersfield, Connecticut, was tried, convicted, and executed for witchcraft. But unlike Alice, Mary was one of the first to confess. Mary was most likely a servant and had already had a previous run-in with the law. In 1646, she had been convicted of theft and publicly whipped. This might help to explain why, in 1648, she stood accused of witchcraft, and why the local minister, Samuel Stone, pressed her to confess. While there are a few contemporary records of her confession and hanging, a later account comes from Cotton Mather in his treatise entitled Memorable Providences. Published in 1689, Memorable Providences makes the argument that witches are real and active in New England. The work focuses on the Goodwin family of Boston, describing the afflictions of several of the Goodwin children, and it would contribute significantly to the prosecution and eventual execution of Goody Glover, a local washerwoman on whom Mather focused his suspicions. Cotton Mather would also go on to play an instrumental role in the Salem witch trials just a few years later. Using the case of Mary Johnson as an example of the existence of witches, Mather wrote, There was one Mary Johnson tried at Hartford, in this country, 
Upon an indictment of familiarity with the devil, she was found guilty of the same, chiefly upon her own confession, and condemned. Many years are passed since her execution, and the records of the court are but short, yet there are several memorables that are found credibly related and attested concerning her. She said that a devil was wont to do her many services. Her master once blamed her for not carrying out the ashes, and a devil did clear the hearth for her afterwards. Her master, sending her into the field to drive out the hogs that used to break into it, a devil would scour them out and make her laugh to see how he fees them about. Her first familiarity with devils came by discontent and wishing the devil to take that and t'other thing and the devil to do this and that, whereupon a devil appeared unto her, tendering her the best service he could do for her. She confessed that she was guilty of the murder of a child and that she had been guilty of uncleanness with men and devils. In the time of her imprisonment, the famous Mr. Samuel Stone was at great pains to promote her conversion unto God, represent unto her both her misery and remedy, the success of which was very desirable and considerable. She was by most observers judged very penitent, both before and at her execution, and she went out of the world with many hopes of mercy through the merit of Jesus Christ. And she died in a frame extremely to the satisfaction of them that were spectators of it. An entry in Connecticut's public records for December 7, 1648 reads, The jury finds the bill of indictment against Mary Johnson that, by her own confession, she is guilty of familiarity with the devil. Like Alice, Mary was hanged, and she wouldn't be the last. During the 1650s, several other citizens from Wethersfield were brought up on unrelated charges of witchcraft, including Joan and John Carrington, who were both convicted and hanged in 1651. John was a carpenter in Wethersfield, and while he enjoyed an upstanding reputation, he was one of the poorest men in the community. He had a son, John, and a daughter from a prior marriage, but Joan had borne him no children herself. When she was convicted of witchcraft in 1651, he was tried, convicted, and hanged as her accomplice. After 1654, there was a brief lull in witchcraft accusations and trials in Connecticut. However, in 1662 and 63, the town of Hartford experienced an outbreak of witchcraft accusations. The first accusation came from a woman named Anne Cole, who accused two of her neighbors, Rebecca Greensmith and Elizabeth Seeger, of using witchcraft to torment her. Rebecca had been widowed twice already before marrying her third husband, Nathaniel. She had inherited the estates of her previous husbands, but her first husband's property was seized by local magistrates under the guise of renting it out to support the couple's two daughters. The rent either proved insufficient or didn't quite make it into Rebecca's hands, because when her second husband died and left her his estate, officials allowed her to sell his properties in order to pay her debts and support herself and her daughters. When Anne Cole accused Rebecca of witchcraft, Nathaniel sued for slander. In return, Anne named him a witch as well. 
When several other neighbors added their accusations to Anne's and local ministers pressed her, Rebecca reportedly confessed that, quote, The devil told her that at Christmas they would have a merry meeting, and then the covenant between them should be subscribed. Nathaniel and Rebecca Greensmith and two others, Mary Sanford and Mary Barnes, were all hanged for witchcraft in 1662 and 63. Out of Nathaniel's estate, worth some 182 pounds, Rebecca's two daughters claimed just 44 pounds. After a portion of the estate was seized by the magistrates to pay Nathaniel and Rebecca's fines, and the county treasurer seized 40 pounds for undeclared reasons. The final victim of the 1662 Hartford outbreak was Elizabeth Seeger, whom Anne Cole had accused alongside Rebecca Greensmith. The jury in this case was deeply divided and ultimately decided to acquit her. There's no explanation given save the foreman's note that the margin was slim. Having been acquitted, Elizabeth was put on trial again in 1663, this time on charges of adultery as well as witchcraft. The jury convicted her of adultery, but acquitted her of witchcraft. By now, Elizabeth's neighbors were convinced she was a witch, and she would face a third set of accusations in 1665. Among her accusers was Margaret Garrett of Hartford, who testified that she had recently discovered maggots in a cheese she had made. Suspecting witchcraft, she threw it into the fire and claimed to have heard Elizabeth Seeger, who was nearby, scream in pain. Margaret testified that Elizabeth, quote, cried out that she was full of pain and sat wringing of her body and crying out, what do I ail? Margaret testified to the magistrates that this was proof of witchcraft, glossing over the fact that she'd performed her own kind of counter-magic in throwing the cheese in the fire in the first place. This time, the jury opted to convict, but the sentence of death was overturned by the governor of Connecticut, John Winthrop Jr., who, through his intervention, had Elizabeth released. Perhaps wisely, Elizabeth then fled to Rhode Island. As governor of Connecticut, John Winthrop Jr. had an enormous influence on the direction and frequency of witch trials, convictions, and executions. As the eldest son of John Winthrop Sr., one of the founders and governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop Jr. enjoyed a life of relative privilege and power. After attending Trinity College in Dublin, Winthrop joined his father in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1631. Twenty years later, he became one of Connecticut's magistrates, and then served as governor of the colony on and off from 1657 until his death in 1676. Trained as a physician, he had a keen scientific sense, which he applied as much to governing as to his medical studies. While in England, Winthrop joined the scholars of the Royal Society and even contributed two studies of his own. Most remarkably, when Winthrop came to the colonies, he brought with him a massive library of alchemical texts. He may even have published a series of treatises on alchemy in England under a pen name. 
His skepticism of witchcraft accusations was probably also encouraged by the fact that the two alchemists who most influenced his own studies, John Dee and Robert Flood, had themselves each been tried for witchcraft. Whatever the reason, there's no doubt that Winthrop's tenure as governor of Connecticut slowed the pace of executions for witchcraft. He left for England in 1661 and was still away in 1662 during the trials of Rebecca and Nathaniel Greensmith, Mary Sanford, and Mary Barnes. When he did return, however, he was able to preserve the life of Elizabeth Seeger. In fact, executions for witchcraft ceased in New England altogether for the 25 years following Mary Barnes hanging in 1663. Even as Massachusetts ramped up convictions and executions in the era of the Salem witch trials, Connecticut refused to join its neighbor. Mary Barnes would be the last person executed for witchcraft in Connecticut. are, by definition, places on the fringe, far from the institutions of centralized authority, and conflicts, even wars, are common. The colonies of New England were especially perilous, with shockingly high mortality rates and frequent outbreaks of disease. In those moments, the disparities between rich and poor, between those with community support and those without, could mean the difference between life and death. This may go some way toward explaining why outbreaks of witchcraft accusations happened so frequently. Though even in the largest outbreaks, the number of accusations and convictions remained relatively small compared to the large-scale witch hunts of early modern Europe. What appears to have spared the people of Connecticut from a similar rash of executions for witchcraft after the 1660s is the infectious skepticism of their governor. Even now, the Connecticut state legislature is still attempting to redress the wrongs of the past. A recent proposal, Connecticut House Joint Resolution 34, titled The Resolution Concerning Certain Witchcraft Convictions in Colonial Connecticut, would exonerate those convicted of witchcraft and reinstate their good standing. The resolution reads, Now therefore, be it resolved that all of the formally convicted and executed are exonerated of all alleged crimes relating to the charges of witchcraft. The legislature proclaims the innocence of the following convicted and executed people. Alice Young in 1647, Mary Johnson in 1648, Joan Carrington in 1651, John Carrington in 1651, Goodwife Bassett in 1651, Goodwife Knapp in 1653, Lydia Gilbert in 1654, Mary Sanford in 1662, Nathaniel Greensmith in 1663, Rebecca Greensmith in 1663, and Mary Barnes in 1663, and one Elizabeth Seeger, 
convicted and reprieved in 1665. Be it further resolved that the state of Connecticut apologizes to the descendants of all those who were indicted, convicted, and executed, and for the harm done to the accused person's posterity to the present day, and acknowledges the trauma and shame that wrongfully continued to affect the families of the accused. This proposed resolution received a public hearing on March 1, 2023, and the Judiciary Committee recently gave it a favorable recommendation. At the time of this recording, H.J. 34 still awaits a vote in the Connecticut General Assembly. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen. This episode was produced by me, featuring the voice talents of Jack Krause and Lenny Scovel, with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. If you want to learn more about the Connecticut Witch Trials, be sure to check out the sources link in the show notes. Special thanks to Enchanted's Patreon patrons for supporting the production of this and every episode. If you want to support Enchanted, please visit patreon.com slash enchantedpodcast. If you're looking for a way to support the show that won't cost you anything, you can always give Enchanted a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, and recommend Enchanted to your friends. You can get in touch with me via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com, or follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr at Enchanted Podcast, and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. As always, for more information and special features for each episode, visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening, and stay enchanted. <laughs>